Well, good morning, church. Good morning. That was a good one. My name is Chris Moore. I'm the Family Ministries Director here at LBC. And first, just want to thank John and the worship team for leading us in worship this morning. Um, we are today going to be in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Uh, so as you all are turning to that passage in Scripture, I just have a couple quick announcements I wanted to make that I wanted you to be aware of. One is our church picnic, which is occurring next Sunday afternoon. Yeah, there we go. I got some excitement. Um, from 5 to 8 p.m., you may have received an email or a text message uh, talking about baking pies or, or making chili. So we're wanting to do a, a pie baking contest and a chili contest, but we don't expect everybody to bring something. So we have a sign up. We'll close the sign up when we get a certain number of people, but we don't want to overload it where we have all this extra food. So if you feel like you're obligated to do that, you're not. We want you just to come. But if you, if you want to participate, we'd love to have you do that. Secondly is our playground area. So in between our B and C buildings, uh, we have an area where it's a little green grass fenced in area, and then we've got a playground in the back. But that whole area is going to be redone. So we've been in desperate need for a new playground set for years. Um, and then we've kind of rethought that that space, just because we have a lot more junior high and, and older elementary kids. And so you're going to start to see construction this week, demolition, and then kind of re redoing that space. So if you see things changing, that, that's what's going on. And lastly, I just want you to, to remember to pray for Pastor Eric, and as he and his family are, are caring for their youngest daughter, Brooklyn, who broke her leg this week. So just keep them in your prayers um, during the week. So let me pray, and we'll, we'll jump in to the Word. Heavenly Father, we just come and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of your word that you've revealed to us who you are and what you expect from us and how to worship you and, and revealed your glory and given us glimpses of who you are, God. And we won't fully understand that until we're face to face with you in heaven, God, but thank you for what you've given us now. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus going to the cross and paying the penalty for our sins and dying and rising again and, and God giving us the ministry of reconciliation. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But God, you want to use us to help others come to know you and be reconciled to you. And Thank you for that blessing. Thank you for your word. Um, I pray that I am out of the way and that your word would illuminate our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that you'd have your way with us this morning. God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as preparing for this sermon, there's one kind of thought that kept coming to mind, and that was the, the, the concept of our, our use and application of social media. And so I remember the first time I got Facebook, I was old enough to even have MySpace, but when my, when my wife and I were dating, she was in San Diego going to school, and I was still here in Bakersfield, and and she's like, hey, there's this new app called Facebook. And so I downloaded it. And, you know, Facebook then was posting pictures of the food we just ate and vacations we took. And that's the point where it's like, I don't really care what food you're eating, right? Like, but that was a way for us to connect. It was, it was innocent. It was gentle. And as we progressed over the years, it became more of a place where people are voicing their opinions the concept of the influencer came out because somebody had an opinion or a, 
or some kind of influence and they were using social media as their, as their outlet. And then it's become, especially through the COVID-19 epidemic, it's become more vicious and aggressive, um, less forgiving, in your face. Um, and so we could, we could look at that and just and write it off and say, well, that's just the world. That's the way the world's going to act. That's the way the world is. But the problem is, is that as Christians, we participate in that. Unfortunately, as Christians, we can be involved in the aggressive nature of social media. And maybe we, we might even have the right heart because we want to communicate the message, maybe the message of Jesus, but sometimes we don't get it right. We do it not in a way that glorifies God. And so when we think about our passage today, we're thinking about the fact that God has called us to be ministers if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And we remember that we have one message to communicate. That's the gospel of Jesus. The world is in darkness. The world is in desperate need to be reconciled with God, and they are separated from him because of sin. And it's only because of what Jesus did on the cross that we even have the hope to be reconciled to him. That's our message. And not only do we have a message, but we need to do it in a way that brings him glory. And I think when we dig into the idea of being a salt, being salt and light, I think that's what Jesus is getting after is we have a message and we need to do it in a way that brings glory to him. And so what we're going to find out today is that we are effective ministers when we are salt and light. And hopefully we'll ask the question of how are we as believers to be salt and light? And we find that we are effective ministers when we remember our identity, remember who we are in Christ, when we protect our purity, and when we live courageously. So the first point I want to make is that we are effective ministers when we remember our identity. And I think verses 13 and 14 give us a glimpse of what that is. So let's jump over to Matthew 5, 13 and 14. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty? How its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So those two verses start with three key words. And as I was thinking about that, I had a little funny picture in my mind, but what are the, 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 three, the three little words that we might say to our bride or our spouse? Like, I love you, but those aren't the three words that we're talking about here. The three words are you are the. Seems pretty boring, but there's a lot packed into those three words. You, so if we can imagine Jesus is on the mount, this is why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. He is sitting on a mount, and it, the, the fact that he's seated is, in, is important because in those days when a king would address his people, he'd be seated on, a th- seated on a throne and typically above his people. So Jesus is taking the posture of a king. He's taking the posture of someone who has authority. And so he's addressing the gathered crowd who's there eagerly awaiting for what he has to say because they're starting to see him work miracles. And I would imagine they're thinking like, is this the guy we've been waiting for? Is this the coming king? Is this the Messiah? So they're eagerly awaiting what he has to say. And it's strategic when he says, so two weeks ago, Pastor Eric went through the Beatitudes, which is just a little bit earlier in chapter five. 
And so this is kind of transition. Jesus is illustrating a point, and then he's going to spend the rest of the Sermon on the Mount practically explaining how we are to be salt and light, what that looks like. And so today I'm not going to spend time on talking about what that looks like. I'm really going to talk about how we maintain the salt and the light. And so interesting thing about you are the is that you, he's, re- he's referencing the collective of people. So in the Greek, this is plural. So this is you all. So while he's addressing the whole crowd, he's also addressing the individual. And he's saying you all are is very important. So this is indicative tense. So this is saying that this is your state. Jesus did not say like, oh, you could become or you might be. He's saying you are. And then the, the is important because it's exclusive. Jesus did not say a, you are a salt or you are a light. Because if he said a salt or a light, it would, it would mean that there are multiple salts in the earth and there are multiple lights. But what he's saying is that you are the, there is no other light in this world besides Jesus. And Jesus is dwelling within us. The rest of the world is complete darkness. Jesus is the light and we have that light within us. Jesus is the salt and we have the salt because of Christ is in us. So it's exclusive. There is no other salt. There is no other light in the world. And the other thing about the salt and light, one is that it's salty enough. We don't need to make it more concentrated. We don't need to dilute it. We just need to let it be what it is. And light, it's just the right brightness. We don't need to try to develop and make it brighter. Our work is really to prevent us from dimming the light that's in us. So when we think about light, it has to be exposed. That's why Jesus says we don't put a basket over a lamp. It's useless at that point. We need to allow it to shine. So when we think about this, we think about this as our identity. You are the. It tells us something about our state. And so when I think about that, I think about our identity. And when we look around the world, we see the world we see people trying to find their identity in all kinds of things. We can think about their wanting to find their identity in gender, this idea of gender fluidity. It's really the heart crying out for, I don't know who I am, and I'm trying to figure out what my identity is. Maybe it's this. I don't feel that. It's always changing. We could find it in our race. We could find it in our nationality. We could find it in our sexual preference. It could be in advocacy. It could be in our political affiliation, we try to find our identity. It could be our career, and I can, the list goes on and on and on and on. But I wanted to remind us of what our identity is, because that's important in light of this passage. So first, we need to remember that we are adopted children of God, and we are his heirs. Romans 8, 16 through 17. This is Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified him. In another part of the scripture, it says that we've been adopted. And so when you think about adoption, if any of you have ever adopted a child, who does the choosing? Does the child choose the parent? The parent chooses the child, and it's very much the same with us and God. He chooses us 
to be his children. And then he tells us we're his heirs to his kingdom. The other thing about our identity is that we've received eternal life. And we say this a lot. John 3.16 is repeated over and over again. Sometimes I think that maybe we lose the depth and the impact and the amazingness of the fact that we have eternal life. But Colossians 1.13 through 14 gives us an idea of the depth of that. And Paul, again, he's saying that he, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Before coming to Christ, we were in darkness. Because of Christ, we've been moved into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved Son. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We have been gifted eternal life, and that cannot be taken away. We've also received the Holy Spirit. If you haven't been convinced that we're, we're set and this cannot be taken from us, it's another way to remember. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed, keyword sealed, with the promised Holy Spirit, a seal that can't be broken. We have the hope of glory dwelling in us, and that is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is this mystery? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So when Jesus says that you are the salt, when you are the light, it has nothing to do with us. It's the, everything to do with Christ who is in us. And so when we think about being salt and light, it's not that we manufacture it. We can't. It's already been given to us. This is our state if you are a believer in Jesus. Our work is to make sure that that light shines and that salt can, is able to do its work. And so if we are all of these things, then it also means that we are ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen to that. We're new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this, not from us, it's from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So this is the first time that you've been told that you are a minister. Welcome to the ministry. <laughs> um, ministry isn't just for the professionals. I throw that in quote because sometimes I think we can think that those who maybe are working full-time at the church are the ones that do the ministry, but we all are in the ministry. And a reminder of that is Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And this is a, a big verse that we like to 
share with each other and remind each other on staff. But it says, then he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for what? The work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We're all called into the ministry. So I guess in a sense, you can look at a pastor or an elder or a leader or a teacher as a trainer, a trainer of trainers, training those who are gonna go out and train others. That's how the church multiplies. Everybody's in on it. So question for you, do you feel inadequate? Do you feel unworthy? If you do, join the club. That's exactly how I feel standing up here today. That's exactly the people that God wants to use because at the end of the day, he gets the glory, not us, right? So some things to remember and think about when we think about our our identity. One is just, do you realize that you are a minister of the gospel? And if you do, are you living in a way that you're representing Christ? Two, in what ways are you seeking your identity in something other than who you are in Christ? If you're being like the world and looking for other things to fill you and to find purpose and value, you're not going to find it. You'll only find it in Christ. And we already have it if you are in Christ. We don't need to seek it. Third, who are people in your life that God has placed there that need to know Jesus? I encourage you to write their names down and start praying for them. And so we are effective ministers first when we remember our identity. That's important. We need to remember who we are, who we represent. We need to remember that who lives within us, who empowers us to do the work. When we remember our identity, it should empower and motivate us, but that isn't all that we need. It takes more than motivation. We need to guard and protect what has been given to us. And so that's the point, too, is that we are effective ministers when we protect our purity. When I say purity, I'm not saying our purity because as John said during worship, that there's nothing good in us. The purity is the deposit that's been placed in us, the Holy Spirit, the one who is perfectly pure and holy. We can do things to impact his effectiveness in our lives and in the lives of others through us. So we go back to Matthew 5.13, we talk about salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything. And one point I want to make on that is, is I just want to address this no longer good for anything. What I hope I've demonstrated to you is that if you are a follower and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is sealed and set. So what Jesus is not talking about here is anything about eternal security or losing salvation. He's talking about being an effective minister. Just wanted to clear that up before we move forward. But when we think about salt, one thing about salt is it cannot stop being salt. Salt is a mineral, very simple, sodium chloride, basic. It will always be salt. You can't make it not salt. So regardless to what, what you do to it, it is always salt. Salt is only effective in proximity, so salt has to touch the thing it's supposed to impact, right? So if it's salt on a food, its effectiveness doesn't happen until it hits my tongue, right? It's, it's in proximity. And in those days, salt was used a lot for preservation of meats and foods, so they had to rub and, and bathe 
the food and salt so that it would stay preserved. It had to touch the thing that it was going to work on. So it's a reminder for us as followers of Jesus Christ that we have to be in the world. We have to be in people's lives. We have to be close enough to people for them to see and experience and be affected by the salt. So then the question is, if salt cannot stop being salt, then when Jesus says, how can we lose our saltiness, what's he talking about? Well, this is how we lose our saltiness, and I think there's two ways. One is we can dilute the salt. And I was reminded of my wife a couple weeks ago. Uh, She had been kind of thinking through a a soup recipe, and we were wanting to put them in the little mason jars and and give them to family and friends for Christmas. And, And so she's researching different recipes. And so every once in a while, she'll pull out a recipe. Hey, what do you think about this? Do you think this would be good? And so this one recipe she landed on, she's really excited. She's been talking about it for a couple weeks and like, we're going to make it on this date. And so naturally, I'm, I leave church and I go home and I'm ready to eat this soup. I'm really excited. And so we pour it out, put it in our bowls. We're sitting there as a family and it looks amazing. All the beans and lentils and things that are in it. it smells really good. Go and take a spoonful of it, put it in my mouth. And I'm like, oh, my mind, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> like, babe, this is bland, you know, which is not words you want to tell your wife after she cooks. And she's like, what do you mean it's bland? I'm like, I don't taste any salt. There's no salt. So like, you just like salt too much. No, I'm telling you, there's no salt. And she's like, let's go look at the recipe. And we look at the recipe and there's not very much salt at all. Like, See, I told you there's no salt. So, but my natural instinct was to spit it out because it didn't taste good because there was no flavor. It had all this really good stuff in it. Or maybe even pour it out, which I wouldn't have done. So I just grabbed the salt shaker and threw some salt in it, right? And everything was good. But we can do the same thing. We can dilute our salt. And we dilute our salt in a couple ways. One is when we think and act like the world. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and acceptable, and perfect. When we think, when we act like the world, it's just like that soup. Looks good, but it doesn't offer me anything. When we want to be different, we want to be contrast to the world. Another way we can dilute our salt is when we love the world. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Loving the world, loving the things of the world, desiring the things of the world more than desiring our Lord and Savior, Jesus, makes us look like the world. We have nothing to offer. We dilute the flavor that God has given us. So we want to remain flavorful by being different. And that's the point Jesus is making is that don't dilute the salt that's in you, which is me. A second way that we can impact our salt is through contamination. And so... Before I came on staff here at LBC, 
in 2018, I, I worked for an oil company for about 12 years. And half of that time I spent uh, near Taft. And oil industry is pretty interesting. It was fascinating to get to know and learn how oil is pulled out of the ground. And when you pull oil out of the ground, you pull water, oil, and gas. There's like the three main things that come out. And in that area of the field, the oil in some areas is like tar, right? And it's, you can't pump it. And so the way that they make the oil more vis or less viscous and, and loose and, and able to be to pulled out is by steam injecting in the ground. But they would use the water that they've already pulled out. And so um, when you're purifying that water, excuse me, when you're purifying that water, you've got to get it cleaned enough to where you can then heat it with gas and turn it into steam, which it gets injected into the ground. Well, part of that process of purifying that water is uh, the water would go through, we call it like a salt stack, or we call it like maybe a softener. It's similar to like a water softener in your house. So water would go through, it would collect the impurities that were remaining in the water, the water would come out cleaner and softer and able to be used uh, as steam. But there's at some point where that salt becomes contaminated from all the impurities and all the stuff that's remaining in that water where that the salt no longer is able to do what it was designed to do. And so what do they do? They take the salt out of the stack and they put new salt in. The salt did not stop being salt. Its effectiveness was minimized because of the impurities. And we do the same thing. We do that when we have habitual unrepentant sin. In Colossians 3, 5, in verses 8 through 9, Paul is writing to the church of Colossae. He's writing to Christians. I want you to keep this in mind. So Christians who believe in Jesus receive that inheritance. Their identity is in Christ, but they are still living in sin. And Paul is writing to them and telling them, and he's using pretty stern words to, to tell them. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. Even as a Christian, we can get caught up in this. And it minimizes our effectiveness of our salt. And I think this is why it does it. If we think about the fact that the Holy Spirit has been given to us and he dwells within us, this is God. Holy Spirit is a person. He dwells within us. The Bible makes a couple important statements. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 and Ephesians 4.30. It talks about not quenching the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is like a fire within us. It's the fire of God who gives us the will and the desire to do the things for him. He's the one that does the work through us. He's the one that's helping us uh, overcome sin and be victorious. He gives us the courage and the boldness. But when we are in continual, habitual, unrepentant sin, it's like pouring water on the fire, quenching the Spirit. And we grieve the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit is a person. We grieve him. 
when we are in continual sin. And how that looks is that we become preoccupied with the sin. And if you've been in that position, you know what I'm talking about. It's always on your mind. Whether you're thinking about like, how do I stop doing this? Or how can I hide this so nobody sees it? Or if somebody sees this in me, they're not going to like me and I'm not going to be loved and be rejected. You're preoccupied with the sin when we need to be preoccupied with Christ. Do you get that? Habitual unrepentant sin contaminates the salt. The salt has never left us, but we contaminate it. And so what Jesus is saying is don't dilute and contaminate the salt. So here's some things that we can do to to prevent dilution and contamination. One is, is we need to have a mindset of protection. Paul in 2 Timothy 1.14, he's talking to the young Timothy, young pastor that he's been discipling. And he tells him, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We've received this deposit of salt and light. It's not us. So guard it. We guard it by putting to death the sin, but then not just staying stagnant. We got to put on something else. And Paul's saying this is work. This is active things that we do. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Guys, remember that you are chosen. You are adopted children. Holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one of you has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Don't draw it out. Keep short accounts. Forgiving each other. Why? Because the Lord has forgiven you. You must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Paul says, put these on. Put to death the sin and put on the things of Christ. We also need to change the discourse. When I think about social media, it's we need to think differently. We need to talk differently. We need to type differently because we represent Jesus. Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. There's the flavor. So you may know how you ought to answer each person. We need to take sin seriously. I was reminded of Proverbs chapter 5. This is Solomon giving wisdom, and it seems as though he's, he's speaking to his son or to sons. And he says, And now, O sons, listen to me. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. What he's talking about is the the temptuous woman in the city, the prostitute in the city. And he's saying, you know where she is. Don't even go down her street. Don't go near her house because you know what's going to happen when you do. You're going to be drawn in. You are too weak to do that. And sometimes as Christians, we flirt with sin. We know where the temptations are. We know what causes us to stumble, but we still walk by the door. And for some of us, that might mean 
It's an app on our phone that leads us into temptation. And it might mean we get rid of the app. It might mean I get somebody to hold me accountable for what I watch. It's downloading something called Covenant Eyes and having somebody be able to see what's, what's on your phone and encourage you and hold you accountable. It's setting up blocks, not walking by the door. If it's an app that's causing you to be angry and frustrated and lash out, maybe you need to stop, delete it. Whatever it is that's leading you into temptation, you need to walk away and not walk down the, the street. Lastly, a way is to join a group. And I don't like to use the word addiction because if we believe that Jesus has freed us from the bondage of slavery to sin, then there is always hope. There's always hope to have victory over sin. And I've seen it way too far in these five years at this church to see somebody who is entrenched in sin and see God be victorious in them and see them turn away. It wasn't because of their strength. It was because they allowed God to do a work in their lives. They allowed it to be exposed to the light. They allowed themselves to be accountable. They allowed themselves to let people come alongside them and love them and point them back to Christ. That's God's in the business of doing this. So join a group, be accountable. So we're effective when we remember our identity, when we protect the purity that's within us. But lastly, if we're doing that, there's going to be a huge spotlight on us. We are going to be attractive to the world because the, the light within us is, being, is shining, which means we're going to have to live courageously. So thirdly, we are effective ministers of the gospel when we live courageously. So Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are, a light hit, or you are a light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And some things about light. Light is visible. Light is attractive. Think about if you've ever been in a cave or in a tunnel where it's pitch black and you can't see your hands in front of your face. If somebody even just lit just a little candlelight, it provides enough light for you to be able to see. And you're drawn to that light. That light brings comfort. Light can impact from a distance. Salt, which is in proximity, now light is, people can see it from a distance. But the thing with light is it can only work if it's exposed. If you cover it up, it's useless. And so when Jesus says, let your light shine in verse 16, that's the only imperative in this passage. And that's the only action is that we need to do something to allow the light to shine. We have to work to let the light shine. We don't create the light. The light's already there. We have to just let it do its thing. And so there's ways that we block the light. One way we block the light is fear. How many of you like attention? How many of you like being in front of people? This right here scared me to death, right? We're all fearful of being exposed and, and having that light. An example of fear was Peter when he denied Christ three times. Jesus gets arrested. Roman soldiers are taking him to trial. Peter's kind of following from a distance, but close enough to where he can see them. And every time he interacts with a crowd of people, they look at him and they're like, Aren't you with that man, Jesus? Nope, don't know who he is. Never seen him. Runs into another group of people. 
you sound a lot like this guy, Jesus. Are you, were you with Jesus? Nope. Third time, same thing, denies Christ. He was fearful because he was being exposed. The tension was brought upon him. He didn't want to have anything to do with what was happening with Jesus. What I think sometimes, too, what happens with fear is it makes us overthink. Makes us overthink because we don't know what to say. Maybe we don't know what to do. We look at Peter again. Great example. Mark 9, 6. Peter, James, and John are with Jesus. He takes them up to the mountain. He transfigures before them. And Peter just starts talking. Oh, Jesus, we can make a tent. We can put you all in it. Right? He's got all these plans. But if we read in verse 6, it explains why he starts talking. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter was scared and just starts talking. Didn't know what to do. We block our light when we're afraid. And the interesting thing about God is that he always calls us into things that are going to make us be fearful. And he does that because when we're courageous, he gets the glory. We don't get the glory. If it was easy, then we would take the glory. But when it's impossible and only God can do the work, he gets the glory. And that's the point of this passage, that he gets the glory in the end. Another way we block our light is through busyness. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And I'm going to use this, the word blessing very loosely when I say this, but when COVID-19 hit and we were all sent home, we were working from home and with our families, the one blessing that came out of that is it slowed us down. We slowed down. We remembered what was important. We were with our family. And I remember having a conversation with one of the moms at our church when we kind of opened back up and, um, and the kids were able to come to youth group and mom's crying because she says, this is the only sense of normalcy that we have is right here at church. Everything slowed down. And we focused on Christ. We focused on the fact that we were a church. And then what happened when things have opened back up, we've gotten busy again. And sometimes in some ways we've gotten busier than we were before because it's like we're making up for lost time. But when we're overly busy, we get impatient, we grow fatigued, we get tired, we get frustrated, and that blocks our light because we don't have time to see the opportunities that God is putting before us. An example of that for me was just Friday morning. Um, I walk around my neighborhood, I don't know, four or five times a week. I can't run anymore because I hurt my knee, so I walk. Usually it's with earbuds, listening to the Bible, maybe it's a podcast. Probably half the time, John joins me because we live in the same neighborhood right here in Laurel Glen. So he'll, we'll walk together and just talk and encourage each other. And, but I'm walking Friday and there's Penny. She's a crossing guard for Laurel Glen Elementary and she's there every morning. I walk by her and say, hey, good morning, Penny. Good morning, Chris. And as I'm kind of turning my corner on my route, she says something like, you know, I hate being out here in the dark by myself. It scares me. And it's like 6.30 in the morning. Like, it's just starting to come light. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll be back in 15 minutes. Right? Because what I was doing, I was preparing for this sermon. I'm listening to the passage, trying to think through what I'm going to say. I'm busy. I've got to get a certain number of miles. Right? I'm on a mission. And I get like 
around the corner and I'm like, Chris, you idiot. <laughs> God's putting a potential opportunity in your path and you just walked right by it. So I made my lap, came back to her and I sat with her and chatted with her for a while. And, um, but she's one of the ladies that I've been making friends with, but hopefully someday I'll be able to share the gospel with her. But that's what I'm talking about, being too busy to see the opportunities. And so when we think about that, there's some things that we can do to stop blocking the light. One is we pray for boldness. Guys, we're always going to be fearful. We're always going to be put in positions to do things that scare us. Paul prayed for boldness, Ephesians 6, 19 through 20. The disciples prayed for boldness, Acts chapter 4. Ask God to give you the boldness to be courageous. And then get equipped. If we talk about the fact that pastors, elders, evangelists, teachers are there to equip the saints. If you don't know what to say or what to do, get equipped. That's why we have connection classes. That's why we do small groups. It's to equip the saints. Join it. Become accountable. Get equipped to be a light. And then rethink your activities. If your activities are distracting you from your mission, maybe it's time to stop. Maybe it's time to rethink how you do it. And in your activities, are you thinking about being a light for Christ within those? So at the end of the day, we got to remember that God has put us on a mission. He's reconciled us to himself. And then he said, hey, now I want you to be my hands and feet to help reconcile others to me. He's given us an identity. He's made us pure. And he's called us into the world as sheep among wolves. That's what we are. But he is greater. He who is greater than us is greater than he who is in the world. So I'm going to wrap up with this quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. When I think about this, I think about there's two ways that people can respond. One is when they see our good works, when they see us living for Christ, they're going to repent and turn to God and give him glory. That's ultimately what we're designed to do. They may also repel from God, but at the end of the day, everyone will give glory to God. Romans 14, 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. There's an example. My grandfather, this has been 10 years ago now, uh, had cancer. He was not a follower of Jesus. In the last month or so of his life, um, I had the, the blessing to be at the hospital when the doctor was looking for somebody to say, hey, he's got cancer. He doesn't have much longer. He's got a month or two to live. And by God's grace, my supervisor, when I was at the oil company, allowed me to take some time off to be able to take him to appointments to get his things in order. And, and I looked at that as an opportunity to, to continue to tell him about Jesus. And that wasn't the first time that I had tried. But I had windshield time with him in his truck. And two days before he passed, one last opportunity, I'm in his house with him and oxygen in his nose and you know, he's obviously near the end. Grandpa, what are you going to do with Jesus? And I still to this day don't know if he believed in Jesus. But at the end of the day, my job isn't, our job isn't to, to save people. Our job is 
to present the gospel. Our job is to love and demonstrate the love of Christ so that they would turn and repent. So regardless of how they respond, we have a job to do. So I want us to remember, we're adopted children. That's a big deal. We're heirs to his kingdom. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness into his kingdom of light. He's entrusted us with the gospel. We are sinners. We don't deserve it. We're inadequate, but he's entrusted us with this anyways because he gets the glory. Let us remember who we are. Let us protect the deposit that's within us and let us let the light shine so that we can be useful and effective for God in reconciling the world to himself. So let's pray. Father, Man, I'm just heavy passage, Lord. I'm just reminded of your grace and your mercy towards us. We did not deserve Jesus to go and pay that penalty for our sin on our behalf on the cross. God, we don't deserve, we did not earn eternal life. God, you gave it to us through your son, Jesus, because you love us because you are a graceful, merciful, loving God. And not only that, you've given us blessings of eternal life. You've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit that dwells within us, our helper, as Jesus called him. Thank you for that gift. And you've entrusted us with the gospel, God. And while we fumble all over it and trying to uh, present the gospel and live for you, Lord, we need your strength and we need your help and we trust you in that. And we thank you that you've given us that helper and the Holy Spirit. God, help us to go out in confidence, remembering that you are with us. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.